me, it was just a production deal. I wasn't thinking we had a label. But it was one of those moments in your life where it's like, you know, somebody puts that question out and you're like, you know, I remember like the world kind of slowed down and, and it was like, label, like slow motion, you know. And Welcome to Off Key, a member on Labs podcast about music professionals for non-music professionals. I'm your host, Linda Arnold. Join me, an industry novice, in conversations with members of Canada's music industry to learn more about their roles and how they first got started in the music business. Today on Off Key, we're chatting with Jonathan Simpkin. From starting a legal career in criminal law to transitioning into entertainment law and eventually founding 604 Records alongside Nickelback's Chad Kruger, Jonathan has had an incredibly diverse career and had some exciting stories and valuable insights to share. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. I find the feedback really helpful and the support means a lot. Anyways, let's get right into my conversation with Jonathan Simkin. Where did you grow up, Jonathan? Vancouver. I'm uh, one of those uh, Vancouverites who's actually from Vancouver. So I uh, grew up in the Oak Ridge area of uh, Vancouver and, uh, you know, did elementary school here, did high school here, uh, did my undergrad here, and then went to Toronto for law school. Okay, cool. Was that at um, Western? At uh, Osgoode Hall. Okay. Western's uh, London, Ontario. Western's I was... London, right. Yes, yes, yes. I guess this is kind of a big question that will tie into everything else, but kind sure. of, were you involved in music when you were growing up and younger? Is this something you got into later? Yes and no. Like, I wasn't involved in any serious way. I wasn't involved in the sense of, you know, thinking it's something I could do for a living um, I never had any aspirations of that nature. You know, my family definitely was into music. I mean, we had tons of records and, you know, my brother was really into jazz. And my parents were into more sort of uh, Broadway theater sort of stuff. And um, and I love music. I mean, I as a kid in high school, I, I think, you know, I really... There's, there's sort of, when I look back at it all, I think there were sort of uh, two different sort of uh, entry points for me. What, one was when I was really young and, you know, I would drive around with my dad in his car and he loved listening to the radio when he was in his car. So, you know, this is back in the day. I mean, I'm talking the 70s. And so, you know, you, all those cars had those big clunky radios with the big plastic buttons and um but i really sort of fell in love with am sort of radio at that time and you know am radio was playing interesting stuff a lot of interesting sort of canadian stuff and um i really just loved that like i really sort of fell in love with pop music as a result of listening to a lot of am radio in the car with my father and, um, you know, we would sing songs together and stuff, and it was just a fun thing. And then, you know, high school I, is when I first started to really sort of get into certain bands. And, you know, I think certain things happen in high school. You, you know, you do 
you do drugs for the first time, you, you know, experiment in various ways. And, you know, that, that included music. So, you know, the first band I was ever really into that I remember was the who, Mm -hmm. who, you know, in high school, I loved the who, and I went and saw them in 1980 um, at the Pacific Coliseum. And um, that was the first band that I really, you know, sort of felt a, a, a connection to. And, in that phase of my life, which is, I don't know, grade 11, grade 12, um, you know, I, I really started to expand my horizons um, musically. I bought a lot of records, most of which I still have. And um, so it, it's always been a big part of my life. But again, that's different than, you know, making a living, uh, having a career in the music business, which really was never on my agenda, at least not back then. So you went to law school. Kind of what made you decide to do that? Like, what was your undergrad in? Um, it's kind of a weird story, although maybe not weird is maybe weird is the wrong adjective. It's 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 probably not the story that you usually hear from people who go to law school. But you know, for me, it was a couple of things. I was, uh, and I guess I still am in a way, uh, you know, a bit of an artsy fartsy and. I was in like philosophy and sociology and I was doing very well. And um, they were even, UBC was even talking about, you know, grooming me to teach. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, I, I would have been very happy, I think, doing that. Um, but I also, prior to, to UBC, had gotten into a bit of trouble with the law. And, I, you know, I had, a, um, I had a substance abuse problem very, very, very young and um, I got in trouble and, you know, um, getting in trouble is probably the best thing that ever happened to me because it kind of forced me to, to kind of clean up my act. Um, but um, I wasn't planning at all to go to law school. I had a buddy who was at UBC with me who said, uh, hey, man, I'm writing the LSAT, um, you know, this weekend. You should write it. And I was like, why? I don't want to be a lawyer. He said, yeah, but, you know, it can open up doors and you're smart and you should come write in. And I said, well, I haven't studied. He said, ah, you just come in as a, as a write-in. Like, you could just walk in and unless they're completely full, which they never are, um, you should be able to just sit down and write it. You know, who knows? Maybe you do well and, and it opens up a few options for you. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So I ended up sort of uh, doing it as a walk-in. Like, I didn't study or anything, but I ended up doing quite well and and I guess that's the first time I kind of went, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, maybe I can go to law school. Uh, but the truth is, my motivation was just to get out of Vancouver. I, I, I didn't really want to be a lawyer at that point. That wasn't like I had some dream or I always wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't always want to be a lawyer. Um, but, you know, when you're Jewish and, you know, you're, you're middle class and you get into the best law school in Canada – you know, your, your family is going to figure out a way to get you there. And I have to admit, that was kind of my motivation. I needed to get out of Vancouver. I was scared of relapsing. I was scared of a bunch of things in this city at that point. And to me, getting out of the city was, um, was really what the doctor ordered. And, you know, so when I did so well in the LSAT and I started sending out applications to law schools, it's like, shit, I'm getting into all these law schools. You know, I, it was like, hey, you know what? I, I, I think this is what I'm going to do. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to be a lawyer. It just means I'm going to be able to, um, 
you know, get out of Vancouver for a while and, and figure out my life. And, um, and so that's kind of what happened. And, you know, I, I remember, you know, um, going to law school on the first day of class, you know, they, they, I can't remember how many people were in my class, maybe 60 people. And they kind of went around the room, you know, so why are you in law school? And I remember being shocked at like how many people were there for like reasons I thought were like weird, like, you know, oh, I had a poli sci degree and I didn't know what else to do with it. And I'm kind of thinking, what a weird way to live your life, you know, like to, you know, because law's so intense. Like that's not the kind of thing you kind of just want to do because you know you have a lack of other options. You know, I, I remember they when they when they came to me and said, uh, you know, oh, what about you? Why are you here? I was honest. I said, oh man, I, I just need to get out of Vancouver, and you know, the only way I could do it and get somebody else to pay for it was getting into law mm-hmm. school. And, you know, everybody looked at me a little funny, but, uh, you know, I'm used to people looking at me a little funny, so it was fine. But, uh, yeah, that, 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 that was kind of it. Like, it wasn't – and even at that point, I had no interest at all in, like, entertainment law. I, I didn't take copyright in law school. Um, I was really interested in criminal law, partly because I had gotten into trouble myself. And I think there was a part of me that sort of felt like, hey, you know uh, – Maybe I can, you know, help other people who are all screwed up like me. And and that's what I did. So I, I graduated and I, I came home and I started a law firm that basically was criminal law and refugee law. So I did a lot of refugee work and I did a lot of criminal law um, without any thought of anything to do with the music business. That's really incredible. And that's like, it's a really like incredible type of law to study because it is um, like when you hear about a lot of people. I mean, I'm in I'm in business school, so everyone that I hear about going to law is like pretty much in it to you know make make some big bucks. So it's nah, really, I didn't care. I never yeah. I, I mean, I like the fact that I've made money. Like I I, I I'm not going to lie and say like oh you know I'm against making money. I'm not against making money, but it's never been the primary kind of motivation in my life. Like maybe it's because I don't come from money, so. I never really cared about it too much. Um, it's funny, you know, like then you make a bunch of money and it's like, it's almost confusing, you know, like you're not really sure what it means or what to do with it or, you know, um, and I'm a man, I would guess you would say of simple needs. So, you know, uh, you know, what do I do with my money? Uh, well, you know, I like to buy video games, uh, every, you know, seven to 10 years I buy a nice car, uh, I'm certainly not a clothes horse. Uh, I don't know. I like to go to the dispensary. I mean, that, I, I don't. I, I don't spend a ton of money. Um, it's just not something that's you know, life short. There's a lot of things a lot more important than how much money you have. Did Toronto kind of per, like provide you with that um, sense of I guess like a fresh start that you were maybe looking for? A hundred percent, and not only a fresh start. It was almost like my birth as a man like it kind of was where I became a man an adult I I you know it was the first time I had I lived on my own really the first time I had a girlfriend I I I was such a case of arrested development because I was so fucked up on drugs that really it's the first time that I kind of lived you know I uh I had my own apartment and I had a girlfriend and I had a job and Funny enough, I also played in a band, but that was, again, no aspirations. That was just a fun thing to do at the 
at, you know, law school beer, you know, events. Um, but, um, yeah, Toronto was amazing for me. It, it, it changed me. And I, I guess I felt without the, um, shackles of, of my past kind of following me every step of the way, it was very liberating. And, um, I just kind of felt like I had, I could reinvent myself in any way. And that's kind of what I did. And I mean, you know, I was out there for three or four years for law school, and then I, I articled out there. And um, yeah, I really, I always knew I was going to come home, but um, I, it was so much easier to come home after spending the time I spent in Toronto, just because I felt so much more secure and confident about who I was. And um, yeah, so Toronto was... I know there's a lot of Vancouverites who hate Toronto for no good reason. I'm not one of them. I, I excuse me, I love that city, and um, and it's a city of a lot of firsts for me, and a city, like I say, where I feel like I sort of became the human being I, I ended up um, eventually, you know, becoming. Do you think you'll ever go back there, or are you like pretty happy like, and content in Vancouver now? I wouldn't go back there to live. I go there every summer. Mm -hmm. uh, my wife is from there, and so we go back every summer and spend quite a bit of time there. Like, I'm usually there for at least four to six weeks in, every single summer, and I love it. I mean, I, I every time I go, I, I'm, I'm reminded of, you know, um, what I did there and, and what my life was like there, and, um, and it's great. I, I, I always look forward to spending time there. So back in Vancouver, then, you had your own practice and you were doing um, criminal and refugee law, you said. Mm -hmm. Kind of what were your days kind of typically like during that time and what did that job entail, I guess? Well, you know, you, you when you're a new lawyer and you're not working at a big firm where they're sort of giving you piles of work, uh, you know, it's kind of limited what you can do. So I was uh, basically, you know, a legal aid lawyer. So, you know, you, you sign up and, um, and you try and strike a relationship with the legal aid people and Sure enough, um, you know, you get a client and um, you, and then that just leads to other clients. So um, I was working out of my house initially, and then I got a very small office in the Dominion Building um, in downtown Vancouver. I was sort of scraping by, but not in some horrible sort of way. Like I was certainly making enough money to, to pay my rent and to eat. And, um, and that was kind of it. Like I... I I enjoyed it and I enjoyed the work and, um, you know, it, it, it took a few years for me to kind of, for the luster of that to kind of wear off for me. Like I really enjoyed doing the criminal stuff and the refugee stuff for the first, you know, few years, but I got to a point with it where I, I want to choose my words carefully. I, I didn't get disillusioned with it. That would be, that would be the wrong word. I, I almost got bored with it. Like I almost got to a point with it where it was like, man, is, does any of this matter? Like, you know, I, I think I went into it a little naively with a bit of a uh, social worker mentality. I'm going to help people and I'm going to, but you know, the thing you don't necessarily realize is that crime is a career choice, just like music is a career choice. And uh, most of those people had no interest in, like, they didn't want to hear me talking about, Hey, maybe you should, you know, get your life together and, you know, I can help you. And it's like, uh, you know, no, dude, um, uh, fuck that. Just get me out of jail so I can you know, go back and ply my trade. 
like it, 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 it was depressing and, and, and I, and boring after a while. Like it got to a point for me where I just it really wasn't a lot of fun. Like it was just a job and that was hard. I can imagine too that someone in your position as well, like I don't want to speak for you here, of course, um, but it must have been pretty frustrating, like having like felt a lot of change through the justice system yourself, I guess, from getting into trouble and kind of trying to maybe provide people with that same like opportunity for change. I think I just got to a point where it was like, why am I even why is why do I even care? Like why yeah I, why do I even care? Like this is just not fulfilling in some way. And that's probably the best way to put it. It just wasn't fulfilling to me. It just wasn't fulfilling. I just wasn't coming home from work going, oh, you know, that boy, I feel great about what I did today. And and that kind of segues into what happened, which is, you know, in nineteen ninety uh, I don't know, sometime around nineteen ninety-two, I moved into an apartment building um, on commercial drive in Vancouver and my next door neighbors were in a band, um, signed to network. And, um, and you know, I just sort of became friends with them and I would hang out with them. And, um, I, you know, I, eventually I, as I got closer to them, I'd go to parties and because they were signed to network, there were a lot of people around from like skinny puppy and grapes of wrath and Sarah McLaughlin's band. And so I just started to meet people and, you know, I'd be at a party and, you know, I, some musician would be like, uh, hey, man, uh, you're a lawyer? Like, wow, you don't look like a lawyer. Uh, you haven't seen me, but I've got, like, long hair and, you know, I'm, yeah. I, I kind of look like a biker, I guess, you know. But they're like, hey, man, like, you don't look like a lawyer, man. That's cool. Uh, you know, I got this contract and I'd always be like, whoa, 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 stop you right there, dude. Uh, that's not what I do. Um, mm -hmm. uh, here's my card. If you get, you know, busted for drunk driving or something, feel free to call me. Otherwise can't help you. But the more people asked, the more I started to wonder, you know, uh, I wonder if this is God's way of telling me there's this time for a change of some sort. And, um, that's kind of what happened. So I sort of semi reluctantly took on um, an entertainment client. And funny enough, the first client I took on was Matthew Good. And um, I didn't know him. I went and saw him play. And, you know, I basically said to him, like, look, uh, you know, um, I I'm new at this. I'm not even 100% sure what I'm doing. Uh, but I think you're great. And, you know, if you give me six months I'll get you a record deal. And if I don't get you a record deal, you don't have to pay me. And so we ended up doing that and I got him a record deal. So um, that was kind of the first thing that I did that people kind of noticed. And, you know, suddenly you're Matthew Good's lawyer. And then they had a lot of success and then other people started to come to me. And so at that point, I, I started to transition. I started to transition out of criminal and immigration law and transition into entertainment law. And, um, you know, that was probably a two or three year transition period. Um, but I was kind of the right guy at the right time in Vancouver, because certainly I wasn't the only entertainment lawyer in Vancouver, but because I didn't work for a big firm, I could do things like that. I could go to an artist and say, Hey, um, I'm not going to charge you unless I get you a deal or, Hey, 
uh, you know, I could work out creative arrangements that if you were at a big law firm, you know, with you'd have a senior partner looking over your shoulder, kind of going, you know, fuck this, uh, you know, billable hours, billable hours, you know, and um, I was lucky that way. I didn't have that. I didn't have somebody looking over my shoulder. I had very little overhead. And, you know, in the early, early days, if I was, you know, cash short, I would just take on more legal aid cases. But very quickly, once the Matthew Good thing happened, very, very quickly, I started to get other clients like, um, you know, then Holly McNarland and uh, who else would I have been with that period? Nickelback. And uh, suddenly I, you know, was the guy. I mean, it's weird because I didn't go looking for it. It just kind of fell in my lap. And I think that explains part of the success, though, because, you know, most people in this um, industry who have jobs like I have, which I sometimes refer to um, as, you know, parasitical jobs. And I, I don't mean that as a joke, like, you know, managers and labels, you know, literally make money as a percentage of their artist's revenue. I mean, that is almost a textbook definition of what a parasite is. Most people who have those kind of jobs are usually failed musicians. Nothing wrong with that. And I understand why. Um, you know, not everybody gets to be Carly Rae Jepsen or Chad Kruger. Uh, most people don't. In fact, 99.999% of, you know, aspiring artists do not get to have a career in the arts because it's so hard. And so... You know, what do people do in that case? Well, a lot of times people are like, hey, you know what? I love music so much that um, I still want to do something in that world. I may not be able to be, you know, an artist, but um, I'm going to go back to school and become an entertainment lawyer. or I'm going to start managing bands. But I, that wasn't me. I fell into it by accident. I didn't go looking for it. And so I didn't have any of the baggage that I think a lot of people who did come from the music world had at that point. So I would be doing contracts for my clients with major labels. And I'd look at some of these contracts and be like, this is the biggest piece of shit I've ever seen. It's horrible. It's like slavery. And it's a, it's a horrible one-sided agreement. And people would be like, hey, man, it's just standard. And I'd be like, I don't give a shit. Like, you know, now, did I get better contracts for my clients than other lawyers? Maybe. I don't know. But at least my clients knew where my heart was. At least my clients knew that I was on their side. That might sound like a weird thing to say, but in the music business, you just never know. I mean, the music business is like a house of mirrors and everybody's got their fucking agendas. And sometimes people's agendas are so hidden, they don't even know them themselves, you know, <laughs> like mm -hmm. they're just, uh, you know, so at least my clients knew where I stood with them. They knew that you know, they could count on me and that I might not be able to deliver everything, but at least it wouldn't be for lack of trying. Um, so um, I definitely developed a reputation at that period of time of being a hard ass and being, I don't know, uh, being a hard ass, I guess. And I suppose there's truth to that. I mean, I think on some level, because I didn't really know what I was doing completely because I was inexperienced, I think I had a, a tendency to substitute um, aggression for experience. And, uh, but nonetheless, that those were the formative years where I sort of learned about entertainment. And, you know, next thing I knew, um, I'm sort of the, the entertainment, the, at least the music lawyer, you know, to go to in, 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 in the West coast. And, you know, I had a lot of big clients at that point. And, um, so that was kind of the years kind of 95 to 2001. You know, that's what I did. I, I focused on being an entertainment lawyer and, um, 
you know, I had a good track record of getting bands deals and, um, and that was my life at that point in time. And we touched on this a little bit, um, but just for any listeners that aren't like a hundred percent sure on like what an entertainment lawyer, I guess, does in the industry or what their role is like with an artist and in like deal negotiation, would you mind elaborating on that a little bit? It's changed from when I was, you know, back then for sure, because back then, you know, the thing I did that I probably made the most money off of and which was probably the biggest part of my business at that point in time was, um, you know, getting bands deals in like getting a Canadian band a deal in the U.S. And that means actually securing the deal, because back then, for sure, lawyers were more like a little bit like agents too. Like you would, you, if you had a good reputation and you had a track record, you know, you could go to a major label and say, Hey, I've got this new client. I think you're really going to like them. And then if you get a deal, then you do the paperwork and you get paid. But sometimes it was other stuff too. You know, people coming to you feeling they'd been ripped off or people coming to you to, you know, put together an agreement with somebody else who's investing in their record or, you know, if somebody comes to you with a management contract that somebody has given them and asks you to negotiate it on their behalf. So it's a lot of contract work. It's a lot of negotiation. It's a little bit of agent work in the sense of, like I say, you know, getting record deals for, for people. And um, yeah, so it's, a, it's a, a bunch of different stuff. But ultimately, it's a lot about um, agreements because there's a lot of agreements in the entertainment business. So how did you go from, I mean, the segue into music now we know, but um, how did you go from working as an entertainment lawyer to then starting a couple record labels? Well, I guess the genesis of it all is the band Default, um, who, I don't know if you know who they were, but uh, Default, well, actually, they're still around. They're just sort of been active. But um, Default is, um, the singer of Default is Dallas Smith, the country artist who's actually on 604. But um you know, the genesis was was really them. And here's here's sort of the story. Um, so um, I was pretty close and still am with, with the Nickelback guys. And um, Chad Kruger, um, you know, he's the kind of guy, at least he was at the time, that, you know, when they would get off the road uh, after touring, um, the other guys would all disappear into their domestic lives. But Chad, you know, Chad's idea of taking a break from Nickelback was producing other bands. And so, you know, when I was his lawyer, so he would come to me from time to time, like, hey, I found this new band. Uh, can you do up a quick bit of paperwork? You know, if they get signed, I get, you know, X percent of their advance, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, so I used to do paperwork for Chad for that kind of thing. And um, Default was one of those bands, except they weren't called Default at that point. They didn't even have Dallas. They were called, who am I going to remember? That's so long ago. Uh, they were called Shock the Day. And um, Chad did, did some demos with them, and I papered it up. And as usual, nothing happened, and I never heard about it again. But in this case, I did hear about it again. Maybe six months later, Chad sort of called me, said, hey, man, uh, Remember that band, Shock the Day? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. He said, well, they changed your name to Default. They got a new singer, and apparently he's real good looking. I don't know why I remember he said that, but he did. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, okay. And he said, they're playing tonight at Studebaker's. Do you want to uh, come with me? And I said, yeah, why not? So I met Chad at Studebaker's, and, and we really liked the band. So we ended up doing a deal with the band where Chad and I would um, record some, some songs and shop them around 
And if we got them a deal, we would get, I can't remember, you know, like uh, 25% of their advance. I don't remember what it was, but, you know, some percentage of their advance. Because, again, that was another way the industry was different then. You know, record companies were still paying huge advances up front. That, that's kind of dried up now. But, um, but in any event, um, so we did this deal with default and we got them a deal. Um, which, to be honest, was kind of like the first time we had done something that like actually worked, and it was exciting. It was like shit. Like we can really do this. Um, they signed to TVT, and um, you know that was kind of that. Chad and I made a little bit of money. I mean, honestly, I don't remember, but I'm guessing Chad and I each maybe made fourteen thousand dollars. I don't know. Why I remember that. I think that was the number. Which you know that's not a bad little bit of money, but you know that was a year and a half work. So it wasn't like, you know, anybody got rich there, but, um, it, the more important part of it was that it really got my brain thinking. So for example, I was thinking, geez, if we had structured that deal with default just a little bit differently, man, we could have made a lot more money. So for example, if we had, you know, instead of doing it as a one record deal, if we had sort of done a production deal with them where we owned four records, for example, worth of rights, that could have been a, a you know, we, instead of just negotiating with TVT for one record, we would have been, you know, negotiating for four records and, and might have been cut in to all four records. And, you know, it was just me learning about the, the music business and, and coming to realize, like, you know, we, we could have done that a little differently. And I remember saying to Chad, you know, next time we find a band, we're going to do this a little bit differently. And he's like, okay, buddy, you know, I trust you, whatever. And so that was kind of, that was kind of that. And, you know, um, fast forward, you know, a year or two later, and, you know, Chad and I were at some party, some house party, and we met Tyler Conley from Theory of a Dead Man, and he gave us a demo tape. And, you know, we both listened and we're like, yeah, we like it. Um, and so Chad's like, hey, we should do like what we did with Default. And I was like, no, 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 no. This time we're doing it differently. And so we ended up structuring it like a production deal where, um, you know, they, we would own four records or five records worth of rights and we started to shop them. But that's when the sort of the perfect storm happened. So this is like 2001, I guess. So you know, How You Remind Me comes out and goes ballistic. And then, you know, the default song goes to number one. And then the hero song from Spider-Man goes to number one. And, like, there was a moment there in, yeah, 2001, where, you know, stuff that, you know, Chad and I were involved with, you know, occupied something like four spots in the U.S. top ten. And all of a sudden, the phone's ringing. And, you know, we had been out shopping Theory of a Dead Man. I had gone to L.A., was shopping Theory of a Dead Man. And, you know, I had a little bit of success. Like, we started shopping it before How You Remind Me and before the default song went, you know, huge. Um, and so I was making the rounds in L.A. at these record companies with A&R guys. And, uh, you know, some of them didn't even know who Nickelback was. Like, that was after their first record, the one before How You Remind Me, uh, The State. And they had had a bit of a hit on The State called A Leader of Men. But it wasn't huge, like like how you remind me. But um, you know, it was. It, they had a. They maybe sold three hundred thousand copies of that first record, which isn't bad, but it also isn't great. Like that's not even a gold record in the states. So um, I remember talking to this guy um, at Atlantic, uh, 
And he liked them, and he knew who Nickelback was. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know that band. He's like, who produced it? I said, Chad Kruger from Nickelback. Oh, yeah, I know that band. Yeah, cool. Uh, and that was kind of it. But then, like, all that stuff happened, you know, with Nickelback suddenly blowing up. And, and Tom, the guy in Atlanta, called me back and said, uh, hey, man, uh, I just want to be clear about something. Like, are you shopping... Um, are you shopping Theory of a Dead Man or are you shopping your label? And I had never really thought about it in those terms. Like, to me, it was just a production deal. I wasn't thinking we had a label. But it was one of those moments in your life where it's like, you know, somebody puts that question out and you're like, you know, I remember like the world kind of slowed down and, and it was like, label, like slow motion, you know, and and he's like, okay, dude, cool. I'll call you in the next couple of days. And I remember calling Chad. He was on the road somewhere. I remember saying, hey, man, uh, I think I just started a bidding war in our label. And I remember Chad's response, what label? You know, because it's not like, you know, we really didn't have a label. We just had a piece of paper with Theory of a Dead Man. That was it. And boom, you know, next thing I know, there's a bidding war on our non-existent label. Um, and very quickly, Chad and I got flown to New York and, you know, we met with Clive Davis and we met with Lior Cohen and, you know, we kind of met with everybody. And we ended up doing a deal with Lior Cohen, who at that time was running Island Death Jam. And so that's where we got our seed money. And it was crazy. It was like we did this negotiation in the, uh, what's that hotel called? The Irving Hotel? Is that what it's called? I think it's called the Irving Hotel. A beautiful old hotel overlooking Central Park in New York. And it was me and Chad on the one side, and then Lior Cohen and a guy named Case Wessels, who owned Roadrunner Records, um, on, the, on the other side of the negotiation. And we literally negotiated a deal over seven or eight hours in this hotel room. And, um, you know, by the end of the evening, we had a deal. And um, it was kind of nuts. And, I mean, there we are... Uh, you know, uh, driving back to, um, there we are driving, uh, I can't remember, we had to go to some dinner or something, and we're driving to this dinner, and we're driving through Manhattan in this limousine, and and silent, just both of us silent, and at one point, one of us looks at the other and says, like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> and it's like, we're rich, we're rich, we're rich, we're hugging each other in the back of this limousine, and I mean, we weren't rich, as it turns out, but, you know, it was more money than, you know, neither Chad nor I came from money, so it seemed like we were rich, and, um, and but that was sort of the beginning of 604, and I mean, our plan initially was just to run a label for a few years and sell it, like, we weren't even that interested in necessarily, you know, just like, ah, okay, we'll run it for a few years, and then I think one of us had read that David Geffen book about how he sold Geffen Records to Universal for, you know, a billion dollars, so... You know, we, we were, you know, young, dumb, and full of cum, as they say. And we just, you know, we were just like, oh, that's a great plan, you know. And But, you know, then something funny happened, which is um, Napster. And, and the, the music industry kind of bottomed out. And so in a weird kind of way, we picked the absolute worst time to start a record label because it was right when all the illegal downloading was happening. And so our plan of, like, let's sell this thing kind of fell to shit because... Um, master recordings suddenly were at an all-time low in terms of their value. And I remember coming to Chad like early on and kind of saying, look, uh, I, I don't think we're going to get any money if we try and sell this thing right now. So rather than try and sell it, 
um, you know, I, I kind of am enjoying running it. Like, I'd like to sign a couple more bands and, and you know, let's, let's build it and let's hope that, you know, at some point the value of master recordings come back and, and we'll sell it then. And Chad was like, sure, no problem. And, you know, so I signed Marianas Trench. And, um, and I really haven't looked back since then. Like, that, that was kind of how it all started. And um, next thing I knew, that's what I was doing for a living. And I, I dropped a bunch of my law clients for the simple reason that um, I wasn't enjoying it. Like, it wasn't a ton of fun for me. And, and you know, it was a hard decision because at least with law, it's steady and it's reliable. And But, I, you know, I was like, you know what? I don't want to do that anymore. And the only client I kept and who I still represent as a lawyer is Nickelback. So I've been with them now for, geez, I guess almost 25 years. And, um, but otherwise I started to focus on the label at that point. And that, that's kind of how it happened. And, you know, uh, then it started to be successful. And um, here we are 20 years later and um, it's still what I'm doing. It's 604 and then Light Organ Records like spun off of that, right? We have two subsidiaries that spun off. One is Light Organ, one's Comedy Here Often, which is our comedy um, label. But yes, that is, that's right. So, but Light Organ didn't start till a good 10 years into 604. And what's like, your role, I guess, um, in 604 and everything? Um, well, technically I'm the president. Um, and I, I sometimes say that my job used to be managing artists and now my job is managing managers, you know, because we have, you know, so many people who are managing bands here that um, it seems like my time is best used overseeing that rather than getting too deep in with any one particular band. Now, there's some bands I'm closer to just be for various reasons, like, you know, Marianas Trench, who, you know, are kind of my baby. It's the first band I signed to the label. Um, I mean, Theory of a Dead Man, but that, that was me and Chad. Like, um, Marianne's was the first time I sort of signed something myself. And, you know, I'm, I'm very close to that project. But, um, you know, I, I mostly just oversee the labels. And, um, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's kind of what I do. Who, so you mentioned Marianne's Trench and Theory of a Dead Man. Um, who uh -huh. are some of the other artists that the label represents? Um, Carly Rae Jepsen, um, Coleman Hell. Um, Dallas Smith, Jojo Mason, Andrew Hyatt, Dirty Radio, um, lots of bands. Were you guys with Carly Rae Jepsen for the release of Call Me Maybe? Yes, I was both her label and also um, also her manager. How was that? That must have been wild. <laughs> yeah, it was wild. Um, I mean, I'm lucky. I've been involved in a few big hits, so I kind of mm -hmm. know the feeling like you know how you remind me and um, yeah. steal my sunshine by len you know as a lawyer and um you know i i was sort of used to it but of course i was so smack dab in the middle of call me maybe that it was a little bit different like it's one thing to be the lawyer for a band who blows up it's another thing to be the manager and label mm -hmm. so um yeah it was crazy i mean it was great it was scary it was amazing it was a lot of things but, you know, there's, there's, there's upsides and downsides to that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, uh, it, it, it financially, it gave me a lot of freedom. It gave the company a lot of freedom. Still does. I mean, that song still is massive. Like, it's crazy. 
So on that level, it was great. But, you know, it also destroyed some relationships. And, you know, when something blows up that big, it's, you know, all the people who sort of dealt with it, all the people who were there from the beginning, it, it's confusing. And it's, it's, you know, there's upsides to it and downsides to it. I mean, honestly, I wouldn't trade the experience for the world. It was a great experience. But um, it was intense and, um, and still is, really. But, yeah, I mean, there was that summer where man uh you sort of it felt like every five minutes somebody sending you an email or a text oh my god president obama just did a viral video of call me maybe oh my god the olympic team just did a viral video of call me maybe oh my god justin bieber oh my god oh my god oh my god you know like being perpetually just going holy shit like it just seems surreal and um yeah it was it was it was great little less of an oh my god moment, but it was for me. My cousin a few years ago in Vietnam did was on Vietnam Idol, and one of the pieces that she did was Call Me Maybe. Listen, I'll tell you something, and I'm not even kidding. I Almost every single day, and when I say every single day, I mean every single day, there's something on Call Me Maybe. A compilation record request, a soap commercial, a movie use, uh, Ellen DeGeneres, Jimmy mm-hmm. Fallon. It's unbelievable. Even all this time later, it's unbelievable how much that song gets uh, licensed, how much it gets played. In fact, SoCan just recently certified it as the most performed song in SoCan history. So there's no other song written by SoCan members that has been performed more than Call Me Maybe. And I believe it is still the biggest selling digital single in history. Wow. So yeah, nuts, like life changing craziness. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah. I read that all of 604 like activities, they take place kind of under one roof, like in one building, including like a recording studio and a sound stage. Is that Uh something that's typical for a record label? Um, well, first off, definitely not everything happens here. Like I built this, I always had this idea to build a facility that could just be a great place for people to create content and disseminate it to some degree out of the building. And that was kind of my idea. And I had been even saving money to buy a building, but then call me maybe happened. So it enabled me to kind of push a fast forward on that plan. And, um, you know, the idea was never like, everybody's got to record here. The idea was more like, um, let's, let's create this great creative facility that artists can use if they want. And, you know, that, that will help us save money by not having to, you know, spend money at third-party studios. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's kind of was the idea. So what we have is um, a studio facility. Then we have a soundstage. So we do a lot of stuff here. A lot of our bands record here. A lot of our bands make videos in the soundstage or do photo shoots in the soundstage. And it's really been great. I mean, we also rented out a little bit more the soundstage than the recording studio, because usually when somebody wants to rent out a recording studio, they want it for um, a while. And we're so busy with our own artists that we tend not to rent out the studio. But the soundstage gets rented out a lot because that usually people just want the soundstage for one day. And that's easier to, to sort of slot that in. So, um, you know, that, that's, um, and it's really worked out great. Like it's really been amazing. So, um, 
I'm glad I did it. And I guess your question was, do other people do it? Well, I got to say, people sort of copied me and I find that flattering. I'm certainly not the first person to ever put a studio in a building. I remember Sony Canada used to have a recording studio back in the day. They, they got rid of that a long time ago. But, um, but now people are doing it again. So, you know, Dine Alone Records in Toronto, they have a, um, they have a, they built a sort of facility with, not really a studio, but certainly, you know, a, a place where they do live streams and stuff. And then um, Universal Canada now is putting together, a, is moving into a new facility that I believe includes um, recording studios. So I think it's starting to happen more, but I feel like we were on the cutting edge of that. And I'm proud of that. Like, I, I think people are, you know, to some degree, some people are doing it now because they've seen the success that we've had doing that. Yeah, I think it's a really great idea because it almost creates just like um, it almost feels like it creates like a like a business incubator in a way, just like everything in one spot. And that yes, I don't know. I'm sure that's very useful for like some of your younger artists that maybe, you know, aren't like as like willing to invest quite as much into like yeah, all the money spent on like separate studio time. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Like I think you know because part of the part of what we do here is not just create the content, but we also, um, you know, shoot it out into the world via the internet. So, um, yeah, you know, it's um, I, I, it's partly a creative hub and it's partly a, a, a hub to get content out into the world. And so aside from 604, I feel like I'm saying aside so much because you wear so many hats, but you also have Simkin Artist Management. What, I guess, made you decide to start your own management agency is that independent from 604 or is um, it yeah i the business took such a downturn um you know as i was saying earlier and and um you know the major labels kind of their reaction to that downturn was um 360 deals which are i don't know if you know what that is but that's where um you know traditionally in a record deal record labels um would um just participate in revenue from master recordings. Like that was all that was in it for them. But when the, the revenue started to dry up from master recordings, um, you know, they had to figure out another way to, to do it. And so that's where the 360 deal first arose. And that's the deal where they are just participating in master recordings. They're participating in everything, shows and publishing and merchandise and it was kind of gross. Like it was not, you know, from the from the artist point of view, not really a um, good development, you know, because it made it hard to make a living. And um, you know, as a lawyer, as like an artist lawyer, um, it, it, it was difficult because I, I felt like those agreements were so bad for artists that that actually played a bit of a role in my getting out of law completely because. I, I didn't want to feel complicit in that. I didn't want to feel like I was helping major labels do that because to me it was so gross. And like the one thing I didn't want was to have, you know, clients of mine, um, you know, come back to me after signing those deals to kind of go, Hey, you know, how, how could you have let us sign this you know, deal? And, you know, I, I, I just didn't want that. So, you know, I remember calling Chad at some point and kind of going, dude, like, we got a problem. And he's like, what? And I said, well, you know, we, we own a record company and nobody buys records. You know, like, 
and he's like, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, I know what I don't want to do. I don't want to do those 360 deals because I, you know, I love making money in the music business, but, you know, I love sleeping at night too. Like I just, I, I just didn't want our artists to hate us. And, you know, I felt like the 360 deals really created a lot of bad feelings between artists and labels. And so, you know, um, I didn't want to go that route. So instead, you know, we started a, a management company. And, you know, it's it's tricky because, you know, there's a bit of a conflict of interest inherent in all of that. Like, when you manage bands who are also on the label, there's definitely a bit of a conflict of interest. So it didn't work for everybody. But I have to say, our biggest successes have been when we manage an artist who's also on the label. Like, those have been our biggest successes. Call Me Maybe, Coleman Hell, Mariana's Trench, you know, um, that's 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 kind of been our biggest successes and that's why we started the management company because um if all the revenue you're you're relying on was for master recordings um you're gonna go broke it was that simple like we had to figure out a way to make other revenue and that that was the solution we came up with and so as much as it's fraught with some difficulties um, I still much preferred that to, to the thought of doing a 360 deal, which I just, I just couldn't stomach that. I, I just couldn't. Um, the thought of it just made me feel nauseous. So, um, so that's why we started the management company. And um, some artists are on the labels, but we don't manage them. Some artists we manage and are not on one of the labels. And some artists we manage and they are on one of the labels. So it's... It's a bit of a combination of that. Do you have any advice for someone interested in entering into the music industry, whether that's, you know, following maybe not your exact path, but, you know, going into like the legal side or the label side or like generally? Yeah, smarten up, do something else. I'm kind of kidding. Um, you know, yes and no. Like I, I, I think, you know, I, it all happened for me at a time that, is so now gone that it's, you know, that's a little bit, it would certainly be harder to do it now. I mean, the one thing I do tell people, especially people who want to get into management is, you know, all you need is one client who's successful. Like that's, that's all you need, you know, one successful client and you can have a career. So, you know, it's, um, you know, I, I think there's still ways of making a living. It's just that the model, the business model is so in flux that um, it's harder to figure out a place to fit in. It's a little harder, but it's also a lot more wide open. So for people who have an entrepreneurial sort of spirit, um, I think there's a lot more opportunities right now. But, you know, anybody who's expecting to get rich quick, you're you're definitely you know, in for a, a rude awakening. But I think there's lots of interesting ways to make a living in the music business now. It's just different than it was, but I still think there's a lot of really interesting ways to do it. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, like anything in life, um, don't do it unless, you know, you're so passionate about it. And, you know, I mean, there are people who can be lawyers who aren't necessarily passionate about their job um, and they can get through life and they can, you know, they might not be great but at their job, but they're good at their job, and that's good enough, and they make an okay living, and that's good enough, and, you know, but for me, it was never, you know, like, I wanted to do something that I really felt good about, like, I wanted to do something that um, 
I felt was making a difference and, and that was fun where I'd actually look forward to coming to work every day. And, um, you know, that, that was kind of my, my main thing. And I don't know how much you can speak on this or say, um, but what are some of the projects that you have coming up this year, I guess, with the label and maybe some artists? You know, there's lots of great records coming out. So there's that. Uh, we're doing a lot more sort of film stuff, like long form film. We released a Marianas Trench concert film earlier this year, which is on Quelo and... Um, Comcast and um, this is soon going to be on Google Play Movies. I'm really interested in that. I'm really interested in sort of audiovisual content and doing more documentaries, uh, stuff like that. You know, we're, we're definitely doing a lot more in the world of comedy. Um, so we're, we're definitely going to be doing a lot more of that. It's pretty much what we've already done, except now we're bigger and we have more staff and that makes it a bit easier to get stuff done. And, uh, yeah. Where can people find you and 604 and... Um, 604, I mean, pretty much any of the social media. 604 Records has Instagram, Facebook. There's the website, 604records.com. Uh, Light Organ, same thing. Light Organ's got its own website. Light Organ's got all the social media. And um, same thing with Comedy Here Often. Comedy Here Often... Uh, has a YouTube page, not a web page, but we've got a YouTube page. Actually, I think we have a web page too, but it's really the the YouTube page that seems to be getting popular. Like, I think we just cracked 3,000 subscribers, which is amazing. And uh, so that that's doing well. And that also, you know, Comedy Here often has got Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, etc. So, yeah, I mean, all all of those companies, all three of them, definitely have a big social media presence. The um, the management company doesn't, I mean, we Simcon Artist Management has a website, and Simcon Artist Management has Twitter and everything, but it's not quite as active as the labels. And then there's also 604 Studios, which is our recording studio. Um, that's also got social media of, of all varieties. So um, yeah, it's we're, we're pretty easy to find online. Cool. Uh, thank you so much, Jonathan, for coming on. It was really great talking to you. That was a pleasure. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's nice to delve into the past sometimes. It's not something I I like to do too much. But um, I think once in a while, it's, it's good to sort of remind yourself of where you came from and how you got to where you are. And uh, But as soon as I hang up the phone, I'm back in the present and the future. And that's where I'm going to be focusing. But that was fun. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode, and thanks again, Jonathan, for taking the time to chat with me for Off Key. As usual, there's a link in the description to the show notes for this episode, so make sure you check those out for photos, links, and other media on the topics we discussed during the episode. Once again, if you enjoyed listening, please subscribe and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. And if you have any topics that you'd like me to bring up with one of our next guests, you can either email me at offkey at membran.net or send me a message at either Membran Labs or Lindsay Arnold on Instagram. Offkey and Fault Tolerant, our sibling podcast on tech and blockchain, are both produced by Membran Entertainment Canada, aka Membran Labs, a music services company that provides distribution services for the export of Canadian music. We're also exploring blockchain technology to create a more transparent and secure ecosystem for music rights owners to get paid. If you're interested in recording your own podcast at Membran Labs, you can find out more information on our website at www.membranlabs.com. 
Before the episode's intro and outro, you heard Shadows of Your Love by Coleman Hell, and I'll play you out now with Ocean Clear by the Sunset Kids. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with a conversation with Shawnee Talbot. Bye. Touch